millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. G'day everyone, and welcome back to the third and final installment of the Borneo campaign. This episode will cover the last major operation of the campaign, and actually the last major Allied operation of the war, at Balikpapan. Now I'm not sure whether it's pronounced Balikpapan or Balikpapan, but Balikpapan seems to roll off the tongue a bit easier, so that's the one I'm going with. But isn't it amazing the difference it makes when you put the emphasis on a deference label? Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. Before we kick off this episode, a quick shout out to Paul Paddy who took the time to drop me a line on Facebook with some complimentary words and encouragement. Thanks mate, it's always nice to get some feedback and knowing I'm on the right track, especially when I've got an entire podcast to research, write and record with a deadline looming and it's a beautiful sunny day outside. So thanks for that. And let me take this opportunity to apologise to any eager listeners from the last episode who logged on over to the website to have a squiz at some maps to get their bearings of the Brunei and North Borneo campaign. You'll no doubt have noticed that on the day the episode was released there were no maps or indeed any mention of that episode. Chalk that up to a lack of professionalism on my part. Not really. It's just that sometimes life gets in the way of what you'd rather be doing and so I just didn't get a chance to upload it all to the Intergoogle. Rest assured I gave myself a stern talking to and assured myself it won't happen again but it will go against me in my biannual staff performance review. Anywho, Valak Pappen. So if you remember from last time the lead-up to the North Borneo and Balikpapan was a bit of a dog's breakfast as far as having troops, equipment and shipping where they were needed to be and when they were needed to be there. Timings were moved around and various changes were made and instead of the 9th Division making the assault on Balikpapan, that task was transferred to the 7th Division. It was mid-April when that decision was made and the 7th Division would be landing on 1st of July. So a couple of months to figure out the where, when and how and to get the troops and equipment together to do it. But that's not quite the full story. The Brigadiers who would be carrying out the landing, F.O. Chilton of the 18th and I.N. Doughty of the 21st, weren't told about it until the 11th of May. Major General Milford, commander of the 9th Division, ordered each Brigadier to individually come up with a plan of how to carry out the landing. It wasn't a bad idea actually because Milford had his own ideas, obviously, but he wanted to see what his Brigadiers would come up with. And what they came up with was pretty much what Milford had decided. Not only that, before the 9th were taken off the task, they had also devised their own strategy which is also very similar. So all up, four different planners, working independently of each other, all came up with the same proposal. You can be fairly comfortable to state that it was more than likely the best option. So what was the situation on the ground at this point? The 9th Division was tidying up the last few tasks in North Borneo. Luzon in the Philippines had been recaptured. Any organised resistance at Okinawa was crushed. And the Yanks were pretty much bombing mainland Japan at will. The capital of Burma, Rangoon, had been captured on the 3rd of May. The end of the war was in sight. The result was beyond doubt. Surely now was the time for troops who had been hard at it for five long years to be given a reprieve so they can look forward to going home in peace. Nope, apparently what was needed was another invasion. Whoever it was that said war is too important to leave it in the hands of generals knew exactly what they were talking about. Balakpapan is a port city 
on the east coast of Borneo, roughly a bit over a third of the way up. It sits on the western side of a headland jutting out into Balakpapan Bay. I suggest having a look on the website, australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com, to get a better idea of the geographical location. Balakpapan was the second most productive oil port in East Asia, exporting about 1.8 million tonnes of fuel-grade oil per year pre-war. No wonder the Japanese were keen to get hold of it early on in the piece. There were two airfields east of Balakpapan along the eastern coastline, one five miles away at Sepangang and the other 12 miles away at Mengar, which would be useful if they could be captured intact, unlike the fields on Tarakan. Along this eastern coastline, hills rose steeply up to around 700 feet, while from Balakpapan port to the north and northeast, the plains ran for several miles before the jungles took over. Japanese forces in the area were estimated at around 3,900 troops, about 1,500 of which were mobile infantry, while another 2,400 operated anti-aircraft weapons and other sundry jobs in base units. They also had about 1,100 Japanese workers and 1,000 Formosans. Hard lessons had taught Allied planners that although only 1,500 were actually fighting soldiers, any Japanese or Formosan in the area, be they administration troops or labourers, had to be counted in the fighting strength. So all in all, it was a pretty formidable force, in numbers anyway. They were also known to have at least 18 coastal defence guns around the proposed landing beaches and at least 26 heavy and 78 medium and light anti-aircraft guns. Offshore from the landing beaches, poles had been driven into the seabed and braced with horizontal beams and protected by barbed wire, offering a challenge for any landing craft trying to navigate its way to shore. And finally, between Salkudo and Sapingang was an almost continuous anti-tank ditch 12 to 14 feet wide and an extensive tunnel and trench network supported by concrete bunkers and pillboxes. So, you know, nothing too serious. In actuality, it was very serious. Air Vice Marshal Bostock, who would carry out the air support for the landing, sent a letter to the Prime Minister warning that casualties from this landing would be comparable to the landings at Gallipoli. For those listening from overseas who aren't aware of the Gallipoli landings, we're talking 620 killed and a couple of thousand wounded, and that's on the first day. So that's a pretty substantial risk to be taking this close to the final siren. Even General Blamey had a moment of insight and objected to the need for this assault, but it had been deemed necessary by the Combined Chiefs of Staff in the Pentagon. So after informing MacArthur of Blamey's objection, and with all the backbone of an intestinal tapeworm, the Australian Prime Minister crumbled and did what he was told. The attack would go ahead regardless of the risk. Do you reckon we'll ever get an Australian Prime Minister with the testicular or ovarian fortitude to look an American President in the eye and just say, no? Geez, I hope so one day. Anyway, there were three main possibilities for landings to be carried out, Manga, Sepangang and Clandestine. They each had sufficient deep water approaches and long beaches, meaning more force could be landed at the one time. Despite being possibly the toughest option, Clandestine was chosen for a number of reasons, mainly because it was the toughest option, which may sound counterintuitive, but there was sound reasoning behind it. It was thought that by neutralising the hard point early on, it would considerably reduce the duration of the rest of the campaign, thereby, hopefully, reducing the overall casualties likely to be incurred during prolonged fighting. It also meant that they could concentrate their entire supporting fire onto the main Japanese force right from the start, rather than softening up the other defences, supporting landings there, and then having to throw in all that ordnance that would be required to then advance on clandestine through the hills. And the final, main reason? They'd have to take it at some point anyway. It was the closest of the landing beaches to Balakpapan and its port. With the Japanese in situ, the port would never be secure. Milford later wrote, quote, 
Why land up the coast and have to fight miles through jungle, which suits the enemy, when you can go straight in under heavy supporting fire, which the enemy can't stand, in comparatively open and favourable country? End quote. Can't argue with that. But, I hear you say, wouldn't the Japanese just move troops from those other beaches to reinforce the clandestine garrison? And indeed they would, if they felt there weren't going to be landings at these other beaches. To give the impression that landings were to be made, a campaign of spreading rumours was undertaken, in the hope that those rumours would reach the Japanese. A reconnaissance party was also landed in the weeks preceding the assault, carefully making sure they were noticed, without making it obvious they were trying to be noticed. And while the obstacles on the approaches to Klansan were being demolished, engineers also worked on the obstacles to the other beaches. The Japanese commanders may have suspected these were decoys, but it would be a brave commander to make the call to ignore them and send troops elsewhere, and so that was where they stayed. On 14th of June, with only two weeks to the landings, the brigade commanders were informed that 10 items of ammunition would be in short supply. I'll say that again, just to let you ponder. 10 items of ammunition would be in short supply. Among those items of ammunition that would be in short supply were high-explosive 3-inch mortar bombs, high-explosive 4.2-inch mortar bombs, and tank ammunition. If the war in the Pacific had taught commanders one thing, it was that in thick jungle terrain with ridges and gullies and dug-in Japanese troops, mortars were the only real means of cracking a position. Now they were expected to go in without sufficient amounts of this vital weapon. Doughty wrote to Milford stating, quote, I do consider it criminal that Australians of any division should be asked at this stage of the war to go into what might well be a difficult operation with less ammunition than that which is considered necessary by their commanders. End quote. He was basically told by Milford that he had made similar comments to General Morshead, and Morshead had also raised these concerns with his superiors, but to no avail. So basically, the entire command structure objected, but were ordered to continue anyway. Lovely. Before the landings, a number of commando parties were put ashore in various places to gather information and learn what they could of the Japanese from the native inhabitants. A New Zealander, Major D. Stott, was landed from a submarine near Balakpapan with a party of three others. On 20th of May, Stott was killed, and two days later, another Kiwi, Captain Morton, landed with his own party and joined up with the Stott's group and led them around the area for six weeks. Under constant pursuit, but they gathered some useful information, and although suffering a few casualties, most were evacuated on the 3rd of May. Another man operating in the area prior to the assault was Captain R. Jock McLaren. You may remember I mentioned him during the episode on Z Special Force. He was the bloke who had allegedly performed his own appendectomy. His team's mission was to parachute in 20 miles north of Balakpapan and try to find out if, when attacked, would the Japanese withdraw towards Semarinda or Banjamasin. They had a lively time with one man who had injured during the drop and their supplies falling into Japanese hands. They were ambushed on 3rd of July with one man being captured. McLaren carried the injured man to safety and then went back to work until he finally extracted all his party, less the captured man. On 6th of July he was able to pass on his hard-won knowledge to the 7th Division Command. The task of clearing the substantial number of mines floating around the area began 20 days prior to the designated landing time. The mines consisted of some which had been in place since 1941 laid by the Dutch in their attempts to hold off the Japanese invasion, some which the Japanese had added during their occupation, and some which Allied aircraft had dropped into the area during the war to try and interrupt Japanese shipping. It was going to be a tough job, firstly because of those coastal guns I mentioned earlier. Any minesweepers working in the area would be within close range of those guns. The Allies did have some destroyers to help, but they couldn't really get close enough to fire on the guns due to the mines. Bit of a catch-22, really. While clearing the outer mines... Two of the minesweepers were damaged by exploding mines, and one of the ships was sunk. 
Another three were damaged by fire from the shore. A report at the time stated, quote, The prospects of sweeping the area essential for the landing in the remaining time to meet the target date seem somewhat doubtful. End quote. Well, that sounds encouraging. Fortunately, on the 24th of June, the destroyers were able to get a bit closer into shore and a combined US RAAF aerial bombardment campaign, averaging 100 aircraft a day, began to take effect and the minesweepers were able to work with a bit more freedom, although two more were sunk and another one damaged. By 1.30pm on the 26th of June, the assault convoy of 100 ships left Moratai. The supporting destroyers left a day or so later and passed the convoy on the 29th and by an hour and a half before sunrise on the 1st of July, all ships were in place. In general, the plan was for the 18th Brigade to land the 2nd 12th Battalion on Yellow Beach and the 2nd 10th on Red Beach, being the centre and left of the three landing beaches. The 2nd 12th was to push inland and capture the feature known as Parks, while the 2nd 10th captured Hill 87, and then pushed north towards Parramatta. If they were unable to take Hill 87, then the 2nd 9th would be sent to take Parramatta. The 21st Brigade will land on the easternmost beach, Green Beach, with the 2nd 27th Battalion securing a position about 800 yards inland. 2nd 16th would then advance through that position towards Mount Malang and secure the area up there. The 2nd 14th would land to the right of the Green Beach and push east to take the Sapangang airstrip. If the 2nd 27th, 2nd 16th and 2nd 14th don't sound familiar to you, never fear, in an upcoming episode I'll be covering the massive role these battalions played in halting the Japanese advance down the Kokoda track. Stay tuned for that one. The attack nearly got off to a really bad start, almost losing the Corps Commander and the Air Officer commanding the RAAF. When the convoy left Moratai, Morsehead and Bostock stayed behind to finish up the organisation of equipment to be brought in later. Their plan was to take an RAAF Catalina flying boat to meet the convoy off the coast on the day before the invasion was to take place. Nice and simple, land the Catalina next to the headquarters ship, passengers hop into a boat to transport them across, and Robert's your dad's brother. But... When the Catalina arrived over the spot, it was obvious the waves were too high to make a safe landing. What to do? It was decided that the only viable option was to land the thing. They'd no doubt lose the plane, but fingers crossed the passengers might survive. And so arrangements were made within the craft to increase the odds of survival from none at all to just bugger all. A message was sent to the headquarters ship to launch a rescue boat in readiness for what was likely to be a messy landing. So in came the Catalina. It touched down and immediately its hull was torn apart. Somehow, all the occupants managed to jump into the rescue launch and made it safely aboard the HQ vessel. The Catalina sunk to a watery grave. In what had become a time-honoured tradition for the Navy, the landing craft carrying the troops to shore got things mixed up and landed them in the wrong spots. The 2nd 27th was landed on Yellow Beach instead of Green Beach. Fortunately, the Army's ability to improvise soon saw things more or less sorted. The position called Ration was initially supposed to be captured by the 2nd 12th Battalion, but two companies of the 2nd 27th decided that as they were in the area, they might as well do the job. By 10.10am, Ration and another feature named Rotness were in Australian hands for the cost of one killed and eight wounded. The third company of the 2nd 27th moved through the other two and advanced down Vasi Highway and came under fire from a Japanese position to their front. The company attacked and secured the ground. A group of Japanese attempted to escape through the tunnel network towards Rotness but were met by Australian fire. Twenty dead were found the following day. Like their 2nd 27th brothers, the 2nd 16th also came ashore at the wrong spot, 200 yards away from their intended. Close, but no cigar. They pushed inland and seized Ravenshoe by 11am and continued on towards Record and later in the day, Malang. By the end of the first day, they held a line from Malang, Pigeon and Record. 
It had cost six killed and 24 wounded in its advance, but accounted for 86 Japanese dead. The last battalion of the 20th Brigade, the 2nd 14th, was put ashore on Yellow Beach instead of Green. So, no score after three attempts by the Navy. But anyway, the 2nd 14th made their way along the beach to where they were supposed to be, and after encountering very little resistance, they dug in for the night at Dalcudo Ridge. The 2nd 5th Commando Squadron moved through the 2nd 14th until they came under fire from mortars and machine guns from the northeast. Four were killed and six wounded. Captain Allsop, the squadron's medical officer, went forward to help the wounded. He was dragging one trooper to safety when he was hit in the thigh, and the trooper he was dragging was hit again and killed. Rather than fall back and look after his own wound, Allsop remained forward, doing what he could for the other wounded. Unfortunately, not long after, he was again hit and killed. The 18th Brigade also came ashore on 1st of July, and the 2nd 12th Battalion landed on Red Beach instead of Yellow, so that's 4-0 against the Navy. The 2nd 12th also made their own way to the assigned position, and then moved inland and seized their first objective without opposition. But when they attempted to move further forward, they came under fire from Ration, which had not yet been taken by the 2nd 27th at that stage. One platoon had become detached from the rest of the battalion, but on its own initiative it pushed forward and seized Porty by 10.20am. The Japanese counter-attack and Lieutenant Kent led his platoon in a defensive action which saw 36 of the attackers killed. Forty were still in Australian hands by nightfall, although a number of attacks were made by the Japanese throughout the night. The day's fighting cost the 2nd 12th 3 killed and 13 wounded, but had accounted for 103 Japanese. The 2nd 10th Battalion had the most important and difficult objective of the day, the capture of Parramatta. The first wave was landed at the correct spot, but the second was 800 yards away. So what's that? 5-1 to one against the Navy? This caused a slight delay while the first wave waited for the second to join them and they pushed forward together. By 9.15, the leading companies had reached their objectives, finding both to be unoccupied. The second phase was ordered and two companies moved towards Hill 87. The company secured a small plateau from which it could provide covering fire for C Company to form up on the lower slopes of Hill 87. Mortar and machine guns were available to support the assault, but the naval cruiser, which had been allotted to provide heavy shell fire, had been called away on a different task. The tanks, which were also supposed to help out, had become bogged on the beach along with the field guns. Second 10th commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Daly, had to make a choice. He could wait until the heavy support was able to get into the game, but this would give the Japanese more time to regroup after the preliminary bombardment. On the other hand, the mix-up with the landing had already caused a delay, which no doubt the defenders had used as best they could. Attacking without support could end in disaster. What to do? Obviously you attack. C Company, under Major Cook, went forward under fire, but an effective smokescreen was laid on by the mortar platoon, and the leading platoons worked their way towards a position 50 yards below the crest of the hill, but then they were pinned down by machine gun and mortar fire. 13 platoon was sent to the left to launch a flank attack, which succeeded in neutralising the position, and Hill 87 was captured. The first man on top of Hill 87 was Corporal Simmons. When he encountered enemy fire, he took some cover behind some drums containing tar. It was good cover, until he realised that bullets were poking holes in the drums and the tar was leaking out. He kind of hoped that the position would be taken before the tar ran out and some of those bullets began making it through the drums. Fortunately for Simons, by 11.40, two tanks from the 1st Armoured Regiment finally arrived on the scene and at this point the Japanese fire ceased. With Hill 87 secured, it was now time to turn attention to Parramatta. Keeping up the momentum, 14 platoon pushed forward with support from the tanks. An airstrike was requested, but 14 platoon took Parramatta before the strike was needed. 
Some time was spent clearing out the Japanese from tunnels and pillboxes, but by 2.12pm the feature was securely in Australian hands. A patrol was sent further north to Newcastle and they came under small arms and grenade fire, but soon overcame the position with flamethrowers and grenades. From this point, they saw the group of Japanese troops heading towards Portee and their date with Lieutenant Kent's platoon of the 2nd 12th. By late in the day, the 2nd 10th was securely installed in a line from Newcastle through Parramatta to Hill 87. Unfortunately, someone had forgotten to tell the US Air Force this minor fact. An airstrike was put in against Hill 87, mostly against D Company, resulting in 3 killed and 14 wounded. All up, for the 1st of July, the 2nd 10th had lost 13 killed and 14 wounded while pushing far inland and killing 216 Japanese. The 2nd 9th Battalion had been held in reserve during the landing phase, but by mid-morning they were ordered ashore to relieve elements of the 2nd 10th, which were holding positions close to the coast. By 6pm, they had taken Santosa Hill, where they dug in for the night. So by the end of day one, the Australians had secured the main features overlooking the plains around Balakpapan. They had suffered casualties, but the fears of a Gallipoli-scale cost proved unfounded. MacArthur, Morshead, Milford had also landed by this point and a communique was sent by GHQ describing the actions of the day. And it's this communique in which I have found the only real potential justification for the Borneo campaign. Although, as I'll explain at the end of the episode, it's not much of a justification. I'll quote a part thereof. Development of already existing air facilities at Balakpapan will enable our aircraft of all categories to disrupt and smash enemy communication on land and sea from Timor to eastern Sumatra. The whole extent of Java and the important port, Surabaya and Batavia, are now within easy flight range and subject to interdiction. Our shipping can now sail with land-based air cover to any point in the southwest Pacific. End quote. So there you go, that's the overall objective. But as strategically important as it sounds, it's not really. The 2nd of July was spent mostly consolidating the gains of the first day. The 2nd 14th pushed further towards Seppingang, and soon had the airstrip in their possession, and had also captured two abandoned naval guns and two artillery pieces. The 2nd 27th strengthened its hold on the high ground overlooking Stelkudo, and the 2nd 16th pushed further north, taking Resort, Owen and Oxley without opposition. In the 18th Brigade's area, the 2nd 12th took pots, and finally linked up with Lieutenant Kent on Porty. Engineers worked under infantry cover to explode tunnel entrances and pillboxes. The 2nd 10th, having pushed further inland than the other battalions, received some attention from the Japanese during the night of the 1st and 2nd of July, killing about 40 Japanese. Patrols went out throughout the 2nd, probing around Tank Plateau, Reservoir and Norman, and at 3.30, Captain Broxop's company took Mount Sepula and the cracking plant. The 2nd 10th continued pushing through on the 3rd and captured Tank Plateau and the low ground between that position and Parramatta. The 2nd 9th, with the support of tanks, captured Santosa. By stumps on day three, the 7th Division held a bridgehead about five miles, eight and a bit kilometres wide, and one mile, one and a half k's deep. Stores and heavy equipment could begin to be unloaded, unimpeded by Japanese fire, and 985 vehicles, 1,932 tonnes of other equipment, and 16,950 troops were now ashore. The 2nd 14th pushed on towards Mangar airstrip on the 3rd and came upon a group of Japanese which held them up for five hours until around 6pm. The Australians were pretty fired up by this point. The official historian noted, quote, The men were feeling bitter towards the enemy at this time because on the previous afternoon they had buried a number of native men and women who had been victims of Japanese atrocities and mutilation. End quote. They later found evidence of large-scale slaughter of civilians. 
The 7th Division's other brigade, the 25th, had been landed on the 2nd and 3rd and they were ordered to advance down Milford Highway. The 2nd 33rd Battalion met heavy opposition among the hills. The platoon leader, Lieutenant Turner, pushed onwards towards Opus, but Turner was wounded and the advance stalled momentarily. But with machine gun support, the position was taken. The 2nd 31st advanced towards Nurse, Nail and Nobody, and were doing well until they came up against at least six machine guns on Nurse, which pinned them down. Private Buckley charged forward over 15 yards and killed four Japanese who were manning one of the machine guns. Now, 15 yards doesn't sound like much. In fact, it's only 13 metres, just over half a cricket pitch. But remember, there's six machine guns throwing lead around that area. I reckon it'd be the longest 15 yards Private Buckley ever covered. A section of D Company pushed a bit further forward than the rest of the company on Nurse and were cut off by a Japanese counterattack in which the section commander was killed. The section was cut off 600 yards from the rest of the company. Only one option really, fight their way back, which they managed to do under the leadership of Corporal Tobin. These kinds of actions show the value of really good junior NCOs, which the Australian forces had in abundance by this stage of the war. Refusing to let the Japanese retain possession of Nurse, the remainder of the company spent eight minutes pouring machine gun fire into the Japanese, preceding a platoon strength attack which managed to secure a foothold just below the main enemy defence. One section managed to make their way above the Japanese and attack downhill, but the Japanese saw them coming and all but two were killed or wounded. The two men who weren't hit, Corporal Farman and Private Harrison, took care of the Japanese counter-attack, killing 20, but the company was still on the nasty end of intense fire from the crest of Nobody. A platoon from A Company attacks Nobody, who names these features, but a combination of heavy fire and thick undergrowth broke up their attack. Towards the end of the day, artillery and machine gun barrages were laid down on both Nurse and Nobody, but as darkness fell, both positions still belonged to the Japanese. Next morning, a patrol was sent out to scout around Nobody and found that the Japanese had abandoned it during the night. Nurse had also been abandoned. The 25th Brigade had secured its objectives. Meanwhile, the 2nd 14th continued its advance towards the Mangar airfield. They encountered no resistance and it was thought the airstrip must be undefended. But at 11.50, while the 2nd 14th were taking up positions around the airfield, the Japanese coastal defence guns and 75mm artillery fired airburst shells over the airfield, causing many casualties among the 2nd 14th. Captain Chapman and Major Taylor, both artillerymen, were killed as well as Lieutenant Knight. Other senior artillery and infantry officers were wounded and the telephone knocked out. Lieutenant Skier of the 2nd 5th Field Regiment came forward with a telephone and began directing fire on the Japanese guns. Lieutenant Thorpe of the Naval Bombardment Group climbed the control tower and directed the fire from the destroyer Eaton. The Japanese saw him in the tower and directed fire towards him. The tower was hit twice and Thorpe lost a leg, but continued calling the shots for the destroyer. The enemy fire slackened a little, but continued for another hour. However, the main damage had been done by the opening salvo, and only one man was killed and five wounded in the later barrages. At the time the Japanese fire had started, a reconnaissance had been moving through the ground near the guns. As three Japanese gunners emerged from the shelter to man their gun, they were shot down. Another three were killed on the northwestern end of the airstrip, but it was pretty clear that the Japanese stronghold overlooking the airfield was going to take some shifting. The forward elements pulled back behind the river and waited until dusk before moving forward again. By then, Colonel Roden had two troops of tanks available, and he was able to push forward towards the strong point on the following day, the 5th of July. But it didn't quite work out that way. At first light, naval vessels unloaded a bombardment on the Japanese guns and the Liberator bombers followed up with an attack at 8.30. A troop of tanks was landed on the north side of the river in a position it was believed was shielded from the Japanese. They were wrong, 
and the Japanese gunners soon advised them of that fact. Two tanks were destroyed, and the third one damaged, with one man killed and others wounded. With Plan A, an obvious fizzer, Roden had to go back to the drawing board. Throughout the day, while he was nutting out the specifics, an artillery duel was fought out between the Japanese gunners and the naval gunners offshore, but neither side landed any significant blows. By 7pm, Roden was able to move a 25-pounder field gun to the position near the bridge over the Mangar River. Roden's plan was for this gun to provide direct support to an infantry assault while the naval guns delivered a more generalised bombardment. With the end of the war not too far away, Brigadier Doherty favoured a gradual, step-by-step approach to reducing the stronghold, and so he agreed with Roden's plans. Before dawn on the 6th, a patrol was sent forward and contact was made with the Japanese gun crew, but the patrol was unable to silence it. Then, with the first light, the 25-pounder opened up and destroyed two guns. The forward patrol was able to direct the fire onto the other positions and, un- and another three guns were destroyed. The lead platoon, under Lieutenant Doyle, moved off at 12.30 and advanced through the bush for an hour and a half to a position 50 yards from the guns. Firing their weapons and hurling grenades as they ran, the platoon charged the guns. The gun crews were put to flight and two guns were captured, but the platoon was now in enemy territory and greatly outnumbered. If the Japanese counterattacked while Doyle's platoon was up there on their own, Doyle would have no chance. Word was sent back that the remainder of the company was required urgently, and so two platoons were sent. As darkness fell, the company dug in. That night, it rained cats and dogs, and the pits dug by the Australians soon had chest-high water in them. But they were better than nothing, as was proved throughout the night when the Japanese launched four attempts to dislodge the company. One attack was described thusly, quote, The position looked very grim, as all communications with battalion had failed, and no defensive fire could be called down. However, the company held firm, and the enemy were beaten back. Interesting sidelines were a Jap officer brandishing a sword, jumping into a weapons pit and being bayoneted for his trouble. Private Dick Hill, who, after dealing with two Japs who attacked him, was attacked by a third carrying a spear just as he emptied his magazine. Luckily, the Jap only used the spear to hit Hill and Hill's gameness in wrestling the Jap while reloading and then killing his opponent is something still talked about. A very serious situation now developed. Owing to the rain and mud, all automatic weapons and practically all rifles failed. Grenades became the order, while frantic efforts were made to clean the weapons and keep them firing. End quote. Must have been one hell of a night, eh? More patrols were sent out the next day to establish the Japanese positions. Unfortunately, supporting artillery meant to assist one of the patrols landed right on top of them, killing and wounding all but 12 men. No advances were made during the day, and another night was spent in the hills. This time, the artillery had the ranges sorted, and when the Japanese attacked, the guns stalled their progress. Five attacks in all were beaten off during the night. Naval fire and aerial bombardment was directed at the Japanese the next morning, with a couple of tanks also joining in. At 12.30pm, Roden figured the position wasn't going to be any more softened up, and Captain Clark's company attacked the remaining gun positions. By dusk, the 2nd 14th had secured the hills overlooking the Mango airstrip. Unfortunately, not long after this, a group of correspondents and sightseers from the rear areas rolled up. It's a time-honoured tradition, going back to ancient times, that the soldiers who had won the ground could take the souvenirs of the battlefield. It didn't sit well with the frontline soldiers of the 2nd and 14th that these others felt they could come in after the fighting and take souvenirs. Some harsh words and one or two fists were thrown around. While the 2nd and 14th were doing their thing, the 2nd and 16th were also fighting hard with the assistance of the 2nd and 5th commandos. They were attempting to seize a position further to the west known as Gate. The Japanese had fought a fanatical defence and on the 6th of July, two strong attempts to take the hill were forced back. Lieutenant Scott of the 2nd 5th Commandos was having difficulty locating the Japanese positions in order to coordinate supporting fire. 
So he decided to climb a tree for a better look. He called the coordinates down to the men of the 2nd 16th, two of whom were killed throughout the operation, and from a position only 50 yards from the enemy's forwardmost position, Scott directed 300 rounds throughout the day. He systematically directed the fire onto specific positions, and by the following day, the 2nd 16th was able to take gate unopposed. So, while the 21st Brigade was doing all that, what was the 25th doing? The 25th Brigade had gone in on the left flank of the landing, and while the 21st Brigade concentrated on the airfields and around the ground to the east, the 25th had the task of taking the high ground overlooking the plains of Balakpapan. The 25th were ordered to advance slowly, making utmost use of supporting arms. This included the 2nd 4th Field Regiment and the 2nd 1st Machine Gun Battalion and a troop of tanks. So, to try and avoid confusion with all the unit names, when I mention artillery and machine guns, it is these units that are delivering the goods. The 25th Brigade consisted of the infantry battalions, the 2nd 25th, 2nd 31st and 2nd 33rd, and it's these units that I will mention by name. All clear? Good. Brigadier Ether's objective was to seal off the area from Alls Junction to the coast and then move in to clear out the enemy and seize the port. The 2nd 31st took up defensive positions on Letter and Lewis and pushed forward towards Laverton and Liverpool. If you have a look at the map on the Australian Military History Podcast website, you'll see that these positions down to the bottom left of the map. You'll also see that these features are also between Balakpapan Port and a number of features starting with M. Now this is important because those M features had not yet been cleared of Japanese. The 2nd 31st Command Post was set up on Lodge and soon began receiving heavy fire from metal and the adjutant and intelligence officer were wounded. Just as serious, the wireless was destroyed. The CO, Lieutenant Colonel Robson, could only communicate with his forward units by telephone, which I'm sure you can imagine wasn't the most efficient method in those hilly conditions. The 2nd 23rd, on letter, also took fire from metal. Obviously, metal was going to need to be sorted out if the brigade was going to be free to continue its operations. Overnight, on the 5th of July, the mortar sections lobbed 650 shells onto metal in preparation for an attack the following morning. Captain Balfour Ogilvie carried out that attack and managed to get metal under control in fairly short order, the mortars having done a significant amount of damage. But a simultaneous attack on Muffle was held up by a heavy machine gun fire and it wasn't secured until late in the afternoon. Having taken metal, the battalion then came under fire from joint, which may not have happened had Muffle been taken sooner. But as it was, at 3.55pm, shells from joint hit the 2nd 33rd command post, killing the signals officer and wounding the commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Cotton. A company probed forward towards Judge to see if it could put fire on joint, but they came under heavy fire and were forced to withdraw. So from that brief overview, you get a really good idea of the problems facing any attacker in that area. Securing one feature immediately brings you to the attention of defenders on another feature. You take that one, and then you get attacked by another. You can attempt to mitigate that problem by sending simultaneous attacks onto other features, but if those attacks get held up, it leaves the main push hanging and under fire until the supporting attack is pushed home. This phase cost the brigade 11 killed and 45 wounded, and that was just getting themselves into a position to be able to attempt the main prize. By the evening of 6th of July, the 2nd 25th had managed to push on and seize Liverpool and Hewan, which basically completed the encirclement of Balakpapan from the southern coast to the Sumba River but there were still a lot of Japanese in the hills behind the brigade, which would have to be dealt with. On the 7th, a platoon of the 2nd 25th was ordered to take Colt, the next feature to the east of Huon, with the intention of a full company taking up a position at once. The platoon got to Colt without opposition, so they continued on to Jam. During the move to Jam, they came under heavy fire from two pillboxes. Lance Corporal Svensson 
led the platoon forward and destroyed one pillbox, but were eventually forced back by the second. There was also a small copse of trees between Colt and Jam, which concealed a strong enemy force. The Japanese troops within the copse were kept quiet by machine gun fire from Liverpool, but keeping them quiet wasn't going to do much good. They needed to be shifted. So in keeping with Brigadier Ether's doctrine of making the utmost use of supporting fire, during the night the cops were shelled heavily. Patrols moved forward the following morning but met heavy fire, so more artillery and machine gun fire was poured in throughout the day. This did the trick and when a patrol went forward early on the morning of the 9th, the cops and jam were deserted except for the 46 dead enemy troops. Now you'd be forgiven for thinking that the pattern was basically fight hard during the day and then tuck in at night for a nice kip to wake up nice and refreshed the next day. Well, obviously that wasn't the case. Although Japanese movement throughout the days could be monitored from the heights, during the night it was a different story. The Japanese were well versed in moving through the terrain in the dark and on just about every night small parties would probe the Australian positions. On one occasion, the headquarters of the 2nd 33rd was attacked by a party of about 16 Japanese armed with rifles, machine guns, grenades and even spears. This attack killed the intelligence officer and wounded three others. But the main purpose of these probes wasn't necessarily to inflict casualties. Killing an Australian here and there wasn't going to help the Japanese cause in any meaningful way. But keeping them awake and on alert night after night with the ever-present possibility of an attack was an effective way of sapping their strength and hopefully causing lapses of judgement during the day attacks. It wasn't particularly effective as the evasion had only been going for a few days but if the defenders could hold out for a few weeks a severely sleep-deprived enemy would be easier to deal with. On the 9th, Muffle, the thorn in the brigade's side for days, had finally been taken after a prolonged bombardment, followed up by two converging platoon-sized attacks. The Australians now possessed the line of high points from Muffle, Joint, Justice, Jam, Colt, Job and Freight. The effectiveness of the artillery fire could be seen on each of the strong points. The shell holes were only about five yards apart and there were many blown-in bunkers and smashed pillboxes. Up to this point, the 25th Brigade had been operating in comparatively open country, meaning he could make full use of the supporting weapons. But from the 9th of July, as they pushed eastwards, they moved into the thickly forested areas heading towards Batichampa. The task of advancing on Batichampa was given to the 2nd 31st. The leading companies occupied Junior without opposition, and the remainder of the battalion moved forward. But during that move, the Japanese remote detonated five 500-kilo bombs along the road, killing three and wounding 17, and then opened fire with machine guns. The blast threw Corporal Mullins 15 feet off the road, but he picked himself up, carried one wounded man out, and then set about withdrawing the remainder of his section. Noticing another wounded man they'd left behind, Mullins went back again and brought that man out as well. I don't know what kind of injuries Mullins himself had suffered, but I imagine he wasn't in a particularly good way himself. It never ceases to amaze me how some of these blokes get so banged up, but just keep on getting the job done and looking after their mates. And so it went on. Having taken Junior, there was Cello, and after that, Coke was next on the list. Coke proved to be one of the toughest objectives to take. It was a steep knoll with heavy trees every few yards and a thick undergrowth. There were also large logs lying about, roughly three to four feet thick, which had been felled by timber cutters prior to the war, but hadn't been carried out. Lieutenant Colonel Robson felt that the worst of the enemy resistance had been broken, and so he ordered a company strength attack with support from artillery and tanks. During the shelling, there was no enemy response, confirming Robson's assumption that the Japanese were just about done. Or so it seemed. Lieutenant Carroll's platoon led the attack, with two tanks in support, and advanced to about 100 yards when the enemy finally made their presence known. They opened up a terrific fire which killed Major Ryrie of the tanks and wounded the second-in-command of the 2nd 31st, Major Hall. 
The Lee platoon lost heavily and was forced to ground. They had stumbled across about seven Japanese defensive posts hidden by the logs and heavy bases of the trees. Robson was observing the advance from a cutting, and without hesitation he yelled, Nine platoon, get up there on the right. One of the platoon later wrote, Corporal Ottry's section crossed the road first and ran into the fire that killed Ryrie. It was so quickly done that I'm sure it was the same gun and the same magazine. End quote. Ottry and two others were hit. Lance Corporal Cooper collected five men and pushed on towards the logs, and Cooper silenced two Japanese with a grenade. Lieutenant Kelly then arrived with the second platoon, and together they pushed forward. Cooper accounting for another four Japanese, and then held the position while a Japanese counterattack was launched further down the hill. Private Douglas was a 39-year-old storeman back at headquarters. When a tank appeared with a couple of wounded troops on it, Douglas helped them down and then jumped onto the tank as it headed back into the scene of the fighting. Here, Douglas brought in another two wounded men under fire, put them on the tank and followed it out. He then stayed in that position and tended the wounded until he noticed about ten Japanese advancing down the lower slopes. So he picked up a wounded man's Owen gun and held off the attack until the wounded could be taken further back to safety. Coke wasn't going to be taken that day, and so Robson ordered a withdrawal. During that day, 18 men had been killed and 23 wounded. On the day after the fight at Coke, the 2nd 31st was relieved by the 2nd 25th, and there was a bit of a lull over the battlefield for a couple of days while Ether figured out his next moves. Eventually, on the 14th, he ordered attacks on Cart and Calm, positions on either flank of Coke, and this was achieved by dusk on the 15th. But on the night of the 15th, the Japanese counterattacked strongly. They were repelled, with Lance Corporal Grigg killing about 13 Japanese as he lay on one side of a large log, throwing grenades over the log into the advancing enemy. But the Japanese resistance was showing signs of weakening by this stage. Over the following four days, Cart, Calm, Chair, Charm and Abide fell to the Australians and the outpost line had been advanced as far as Pope's track. General Milford decided that was as far as they needed to go. There was no point pushing further, losing lives in the process, and General Morse had agreed. Ether was ordered to hold his ground and only send patrols out in order to maintain the security of the forward positions. The fighting to the east of Balakpapan was more or less over. That means there was only one more thing for us to cover. Although the beaches which had been used to land the troops were now free from any risk, they simply couldn't handle the vast amounts of stores required to maintain the force. Milford asked Rear Admiral Noble to begin landing supplies at the port of Balakpapan, but Noble refused, stating he wouldn't risk a single destroyer unless he had a guarantee that the Japanese couldn't fire at them from the west coast. With no other choice, Milford ordered the 18th Brigade to clear the western shores. The task was given to the 2nd 9th Battalion, with support from the 2nd 7th Commando Regiment, a troop of tanks and a troop of field guns, including heavy mortars. The landing was carried out on the 5th of July, the standard naval and artillery bombardment preceded the landing and the first troops landed unopposed at 1.35pm. Less than an hour later, the entire battalion was ashore, as were the tanks, although the tanks were pretty much useless as they were all bogged. The infantry quickly pushed inland and came under fire from enemy artillery about three miles west of Panadjum. Fortunately, the 2nd 4th Field Regiment had some guns on the eastern side of the bay which were in range and so they soon took care of that problem. By the end of the day, six enemy guns had been captured and one Japanese soldier killed. The next few days were spent with small patrols scouting the area, searching for enemy positions. Some contacts were made with a number of Japanese killed, but more often than not, the areas the battalion searched were unoccupied. On the 15th of July, Lance Corporal McKinley reported that a Japanese vessel was located a few miles up the Rico River and a patrol was sent to keep an eye on it. There were no Japanese on board, but while they were there, the patrol saw a barge towing another vessel towards them. They waited for the barge to get closer and then sprang their ambush, which caused the barge to catch fire and sink. 
Five Japanese were taken prisoner and patrol used the captured vessel to carry their prisoners back down the river. More reports were received that some Japanese troops were assembling at the northern end of the bay. Although the ground was more or less secured, there was still a chance that the Japanese could float small vessels into the port under the cover of darkness and do some damage, and so a force was sent to secure the northern area. Extensive patrolling uncovered small groups of Japanese soldiers, but it wasn't until early August that the entirety of Balakpapan Bay was secure. And that, pretty much, brings us to the end of the Borneo campaign. Balakpapan added another 229 to the tally of Australian dead and another 634 wounded. Japanese lost just over 2,000 killed. Only 63 were captured, again showing their determination to die fighting rather than face capture. In all, Australia suffered around 2,100 casualties, of which roughly 600 were killed across all of the Borneo operations. Japanese casualties came in at just under 5,000, and the big question is, was all this necessary? When you look at a map of the world and Borneo's place therein, you do get an idea of the strategic importance from a World War II perspective. It sits kind of in the middle of a circle of important countries. Singapore, just off the tip of what was then known as Malaya, is less than 300 miles from the west coast, with no land mass in between. If you're launching an assault to retake Singapore, you're going to launch it from Borneo. To the south and east, you've got the archipelago of Indonesia and access to the Timor Sea and its oil reserves. And to the northeast, you've got the Philippines and their abundant resources. Directly north of the tip of Borneo, you've got unhindered access to the South China Sea and all the ports and resources that come with control of that area. There can be little doubt about the importance of Borneo, which is why the Japanese seized it so early on in the war. As a base of operations at that stage of the war, it was invaluable. Taking it from them at the earliest convenience at any time between 1942 and 1944 would have had huge consequences for the outcome of the war. Obviously, throughout 1942 and into 1943, the Allies were busy just halting the Japanese advance through New Guinea from the Australian perspective and from the Americans' perspective around the islands of Guadalcanal, etc. During the same period, the POMs were having their own issues, so it's fair enough that not much was done towards the retaking of Borneo. But that was the time when Borneo was strategically important. By May 1945, the directions that operations were taking was most certainly away from Borneo. As I said at the start, at this stage, American forces are on Japan's doorstep. The British forces had seized Rangoon in Burma by April 1945. If their plan for the next phase of the war was to push south towards Malaya, then launching the missile from Borneo to head north and catch the Japanese between the two forces is probably not a bad idea. But the POMs aren't the head honchos in the Pacific theatre. MacArthur is, and Australian forces are nominally under his authority. And MacArthur is knocking on Japan's door. His whole strategy is, is the island-hopping campaign. Cut the mainland off from the forces holding various islands, and you cut off the flow of supplies to those forces. They wither and die without needing to fight for each individual island. MacArthur had tunnel vision for Japan. So what does it matter to him if the British want to punch south into Malaya? He's going to cut off any chance of supply and reinforcement to that part of the world anyway. So, why send Australian troops to seize Borneo, an island which by this stage has little strategic value in MacArthur's grand war-winning strategy? Even Thomas Blamey, who had been little more than MacArthur's lapdog for the last two years, worked to try and limit the scope of operations. As I said at the start, I have no idea why, and having read through everything and arriving at the end, I still have no idea why. I don't know what was going through MacArthur's mind. Yes, there was that communique about having control over the entire area, freedom of shipping and all that, but they were going to achieve that anyway when they knocked Japan out of the war. Even after discarding 75 years of historical debate, it's hard to see just what MacArthur was hoping to achieve. 
Did he have a grand strategy for 1946, for which Borneo was a major part? Or was he just keeping the diggers busy while the US took, in inverted commas, the glory of victory over Japan? I'll leave that up to you to decide for yourselves. Okay, so thank you one and all for following along with this three-part series on the Borneo campaign. It's a bit of a removal from my usual short and sharp episodes, so I'm interested to hear what you think. Do you prefer the shorter, one-episode type thing, or do you like the more in-depth coverage? Or maybe a little from column A and a little from column B. Pop over to the Facebook page, let me know. Next time, we're back to a single episode account of a world-changing war in which Australians took part, but which very few people know about. I'll catch you for that one. Cheers, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.